Last week, I gave you an outline of the book of Romans as we begin the journey together. And I suggested that you might want to memorize that outline. And I asked Ron this week to please reproduce it in the bulletins for you so that you'll have it. And uh, it's just good to have some handles to, you know, put on this book so you can carry it around with you a little more fully. You remember in that outline that I gave you last week, I said there were a couple of bookends. There's the greetings and introduction at the beginning, and then there's the conclusion and greetings at the end of the book. And then in the middle of the book, Paul outlines his gospel. And he begins in the outline of his gospel, which is the gospel, with the great truths of condemnation. He labors away with the truths of condemnation, and then once he has shown us who we really are, he then shows us our only hope is Christ. And so he begins to unpack the great truths of justification. He follows that by talking about our life in Christ with those marvelous truths of sanctification, right? And then after that, he answers the great question about Israel. What about Israel? Under what we are calling restoration. And then he finishes the outline of his gospel with its practical outworking in the lives of his people. We call that transformation. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, restoration, and transformation. If you can get your hands on those key words, you have your hands on the book of Romans. The year was 1979. And the music world was shaken when Bob Dylan released an album called Slow Train Coming. That album supposedly chronicled his journey to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the cuts on that album, Slow Train Coming, was a song entitled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Dylan wrote, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan does it better than I do, of course. And I honestly have no idea whether Bob Dylan is regenerate or not. And that's really beyond my purview. But the one thing that I do know is that he was right. You're going to have to serve somebody. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we will begin to dig into this great epistle. If you are using those pew Bibles, you want to go to page 1125, 1125, as we begin here, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul begins this letter with the same threefold fashion, in the same threefold fashion as was common, the writings of his day. Notice here, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
As was customary in those days, the writer would identify themselves first. He would then name the recipients of the letter that he was addressing. And finally, he would provide some word of greeting, which appears, of course, down in verse 7, where he identifies the recipients, right? The beloved of God at Rome, called the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very customary way of a letter being opened. Today, we do it a little bit differently, don't we? We begin our letters today by identifying the recipient first, dear John. And then the letter unfolds, and of course we close it with some sort of greeting, many times a blessing of sorts, and then our name. So our custom is a little different than theirs, but this was very much the custom of his day. What's unique about his introduction here, though, is it is his longest introduction that is recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. This is the longest introduction of any of Paul's epistles. Why? Why does he provide such a lengthy introduction here that carries in the English Bible through the first seven verses? What is it that caused him to take so long to get into his topic, if you will? I think the answer to that is probably has something to do with the fact that Paul has never met these people. This is a group of believers here in the capital city of Rome to which Paul is addressing some very serious instruction, yet this is not a church he has founded. This is not a Pauline church, at least in a formal sense. There is no immediate claim for his apostolic authority over this group of believers. And so I believe what he's doing here in these first seven verses is is painstakingly outlining his apostolic credentials. He is providing for them the basis for which they should then listen to what he has to say in the rest of this great epistle. Beyond that, from just a very practical point of view, he is intending to come to Rome. He's going to visit them there and he wants to have fellowship with them. He says later in in the letter that he's going to impart to them spiritual gift. He wants them to impart to him ministry. And by the way, he needs money. These are practical reasons. He's on his way to Spain. He's stopping through in Rome and he needs some money to get on his way there. And so he's introducing himself to this group of believers with all of these purposes, no doubt, rolling through his mind. The churches here in Rome, and again, we pointed this out last week, verse 7, it's written to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. This is not written to any one church, not like the letter to the Thessalonians where it's spoken of as written to the church of the Thessalonians. This is written to the believers in Rome. Many churches. I heard uh, this past week, and I'd never heard this number before, but, but a man who was uh, known for certainly his biblical abilities uh, suggested there could be as many as 200 churches there in the capital city. House churches, little fellowships. So we don't know, but we certainly know there would be a number of them, many of them there in Rome. Founded, coming out of the great uh, revival of Pentecost, the great outpouring of the Spirit there in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when people from all over the empire, you remember, came to faith in Jesus Christ that day in a great harvest. And then they were scattered throughout the empire, some no doubt heading to Rome. And so these churches in Rome have a Jewish flavor to them, these house churches. They were founded by Jews who had come to faith in the Messiah. 
and had gone back to the capital city where they were from and begun to plant these little house churches. But beyond that, there are Gentile converts as well. These were not so sure about how they came, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to suppose that Rome being the capital of the empire, the center of trade, that there would be Gentiles that would come and go and move throughout the empire, having come in contact with Christ perhaps somewhere else and then moving to do business or see family or many reasons it would take them to the capital city which at this point had a population somewhere approaching one million people. And so there were Gentile believers here in Rome. It may be telling for us that as Paul addresses uh, these believers, these house churches in Rome, that he has to provide lengthy instruction on that age-old problem between Jew and Gentile having to do with dietary laws. Romans chapter 14 is a rather extended treatment of the issue of meat offered to idols, whether it's permissible to eat idol meat or not. And so it appears the church at Rome is having some problems, at least in that area. But in introducing himself here to the believers in Rome, Paul speaks of a radical transformation that has occurred in his life because he has become captivated by Christ. And so this morning, that's really what I want to look at with you. I want to explore this radical transformation brought on by his conversion so that we will understand what it means to be captivated by Christ. First word, Paul. Paul. He introduces himself by his Roman name. From the book of Acts and other biographical material given in other ones of his letters or epistles, we learn he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. That is in eastern, what is modern day Turkey. He grew up in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus was a university city, a university town. And so he grew up in a place that was a center of Greek learning and education. He grew up not only though in this Greek speaking world, but he was raised in a strict Aramaic-speaking home, immersed in Jewish culture. So he is a man of two cultures, brought up in the strictness of his ancestral faith, and yet immersed in a culture of Greek learning and philosophy. At a relatively early age, he tells us, he moved to Jerusalem, where he took up study under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, And there Paul excelled in his studies, he tells us. He was a brilliant young man. He was a man who was full of passion and zeal and he pursued these studies with vigor. He also tells us his father was a Pharisee. That he is a son of Pharisee. So he was brought up in that tradition of his heritage. The strictest, the the one who was most focused on obedience to the law of God, the one that had encrusted indeed the very law of God with their own rituals and regulations that they might somehow be holy. Paul was brought up as a legalist. He was brought up as a legalist in the strictest sense of the legalism of his day. He says he excelled among his peers. He moved rapidly up the ladder of promotion 
He was an up-and-comer. He was one whom his professors would look out on and say, this guy's going to go somewhere someday. He's going to make something of himself. Perhaps because of his background, certainly being raised in the home of a Pharisee would, would give him a leg up on others of his, of his peers. But beyond that, I think it has to do with, it, with the tremendous giftedness that his God had endowed him with. Socially, he belonged to a to an up-and-coming class, a privileged class of society. Both he and his father were Roman citizens. Now, citizenship today in America doesn't mean anything like what it meant in the ancient world. To be a Roman citizen was a valuable prize. It was, there were numbers of privileges that it opened up to you, protections under the law that were not available to the average man. And so to be a Roman citizen demonstrated some level of social standing, particularly if you were from a conquered people group like the Jews. It just wasn't normal for them to be citizens. And yet this man is a citizen, he says, and his father was a citizen before him. We take from that that evidently somewhere back in his lineage, perhaps his father, perhaps his grandfather, we do not know, had done some great favor to the Roman government upon which they had conferred the privilege of citizenship. And Paul carried that citizenship with him throughout the ancient world as he began his missionary travels, right? And there he strategically used his citizenship rights and privileges for the advancement of the gospel, sometimes revealing his citizenship, other times concealing it as it benefited the expansion of the work of Christ. Paul's own words, listen to them here as he describes the Jewish pedigree that he grew up with, that he brings to the table. He says he was circumcised, this is Philippians 3, 5 and 6, he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that is, raised in the strictest sense, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This man kept it. He was able to keep the minutiae of the law, he says. But he concludes later on in his life that all of these attainments, all of this advantage, all of this earthly Privilege that has his is not worth a pile of manure compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Having faith in His atoning sacrifice. Again, listen to what he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but scubalon, rubbish, manure, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What a transformation happened 
in this man's life. All of the advantage, all of the earthly advantage that he once had, he said, doesn't amount to a pile of what a horse leaves on a road when it walks by. It has no value, no merits before God. That it is knowing Christ Jesus. That is everything. Shortly before writing this letter to the church at Rome, Paul recounted for the church at Corinth his new pedigree. Turn there with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, page 1162 if you're using those few Bibles. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning on verse 23. Notice the dramatic difference, the marked difference, the vivid contrast between what he had once counted as his privilege and now what he calls to mind as his pedigree. Verse 23, 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I speak as if insane. He's, this is not comfortable for him to boast in this way, but he goes on. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, There is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. What a difference. No longer does he focus on that which was his by inheritance. No longer does he focus on that which he has achieved in his own strength and power. Now he revels in what God has done with him. What brought about such a profound change in this man? There is only one answer. Saul of Tarsus had become Paul the Apostle. He had encountered on the road to Damascus the living Lord. And his life was revolutionized. It was turned, we would say, right side up, right? He was a man who had encountered God. And he had been changed by that, never to return again. He had been radically transformed at the very level of his passions. The core of his being. He no longer loved himself. There was a new love in his life. A a new one had taken first place in his heart. He had been captivated by Christ. And the terminology that he uses to describe that captivation is here for us in Romans 1 and verse 1. So turn back there. The terminology the Apostle uses 
to describe his transformation is the terminology of slavery. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. A bondservant. Doulos in the Greek, it means a slave, simply put. One who is owned by another. This word doulos for a Greek, the idea of being a slave to your God was abhorrent in the Greek world. Absolutely abhorrent. Of course, that's pretty much understandable, I think. But judging the nature, the fickle and malevolent nature of the so-called gods of paganism, who would want to be their slave? But for the Apostle Paul, he says, I have been enslaved to Jesus Christ. I am His bond servant. This word group, which we get the word doulas in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is a common expression for the service of God. It, it communicates the idea of total allegiance. Total allegiance. Not just isolated acts of worship. To be the slave of the God of Israel is to be given wholeheartedly to Him. It expresses the idea of total belonging. Total allegiance. Absolute ownership. But it is not a slavery in which one seeks escape. The word slave is coarse and harsh to our ears. We mention the word slave and we immediately think of a servitude from which one deserves to be delivered. Yet that's not what is communicated in the context of the Old Testament. This word doulas. It is a slavery entered into by love. It is a voluntary servitude into which one enters by love. The picture behind this expression is actually an Old Testament picture of the love that would bind a slave to his master. Exodus 21. Just mark it down. You can listen. Exodus 21, verses 2 to 6. I think is the Old Testament passage that stands behind this New Testament word, doulas, bondservant, slave. There, under inspiration, Moses writes, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, that is, to the judges of God, and, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. The law of Israel made provision for a slave who was so devoted to his master, so loved his master, found such reward and satisfaction in the service of his master that he could become permanently attached to his master. That's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul is communicating here when he says, Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus. This is a title, beloved, that was gladly worn by the followers of Jesus Christ. It is a role that is wholeheartedly embraced 
by all those who know and love Jesus Christ. Individuals, New Testament individuals, let me just run through a list of you with you, will refer to themselves as the doulas of God, the bondservants of God. Luke 2, verse 20, Simeon. Do you remember old Simeon? The man in the temple awaiting the Messiah, right? Where Jesus is brought in to be circumcised. And Simeon says, I can now go to my grave. My eyes have seen the Lord's Messiah. He calls himself a doulas, a bondservant of God. James chapter 1, verse 1, refers to himself as a doulos, a slave of God. Peter, 2 Peter 1, 1, refers to himself as the slave of God. Jude, verse 1, Jude 1, verse 1, refers to himself as the slave of God. The Apostle John, Revelation 1, 1, refers to himself as the doulos, as the slave of God. And of course, the Apostle Paul here and a couple of other places refers to himself by that same terminology. But there are others, lest you think that it's somehow only the apostles who enter into this role. There are others who are called slaves of God. Individuals that in the New Testament bear this title. Moses is called the slave of God. Revelation 15, verse 3. Jesus himself is called the slave of God. Philippians 2. Verse 7. Epaphras, Colossians 1, 7. Tychicus, Colossians 4, 7. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24. And all Christians, 1 Corinthians 7, 22. Ephesians 6, 6. That's all of us. All of us swept up in this great term. We are the doulos of Christ. That is, we belong to Him Totally, that our allegiance is given to Him totally, that our ownership by Him is absolute. To be the doulos of Christ is to have Him as the object of your passions. To have Him as the very object of your passions. His glory is to be your heart's desire. His will is to be your will, your welcomed duty. This past week, last six days actually, had the privilege of attending a one-semester course crammed into six days over at the Master's Seminary. Fortunately, I was taking it for audit, which is the only way to do such things, except for my brother Vincent, who takes it for credit and has to do all the work. Anyway, there were a number of us who went over there. It was a a class entitled The Selected Writings of Jonathan Edwards. My heart was provoked as I sat there hour after hour, day after day, listening to the professor who knew Jonathan, who knows Jonathan Edwards like they were best friends. He said something a few days ago that just resonated in my heart. Dr. John Hanna from Dallas Theological Seminary And I don't know if this is a direct quote, but this is basically what he said. I scratched it down quick. He said, he who is most free is the one who is most enslaved to Christ by being captivated by his beauty. He who is most free is the one who is most enslaved to Christ by being captivated by his beauty. Paul was captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ. Paul was the slave of Christ. And beloved, we are His slaves too. 
those of us who know Christ as our Savior. Perhaps the Apostle Paul took this title to himself early on here in his introduction of himself to these people because he wants to let the believers at Rome know of his total and absolute commitment to their Savior. You've got to remember, this is the guy who was once persecuting the church unto death, right? He now says, I am fully, totally sold out for Christ Jesus. Notice, Christ Jesus. Let your eyes look at that for a moment. Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus, Paul says. I am a slave of the Messiah, the long-promised One, the Deliverer from God, who, by the way, is a crucified Jewish carpenter from Galilee by the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul could now see in this One the fulfillment of all that God had long promised. The One who Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53. The One who was considered afflicted and and stricken and suffering for His own wickedness. Paul now sees, no, His suffering was for me. That the wrath of God was poured out on Him, not because of His wickedness, but because of mine. Paul sees in the suffering servant of Christ the great Messiah of Israel. And so he says, I am the slave of this one. Now, for both the Apostle Paul and for us, there exists a tension in our lives. We do not consistently and gladly rejoice in our new status. That is our heart's desire, but that is not the reality of our lives. There is a war going on within us. There is a struggle at the very center of our being for our passions that causes the beauty of Christ to become faded or distorted to our view. Where does this turmoil come from? Where does this struggle originate? As Paul will unpack here in the book of Romans, it is the remnants of our pre-conversion life. It is what theologians call a hamartiological hangover, if you like. That is, it is the old man still. It is the old passions. It is those things in our minds, the way we used to think, the way we used to respond. All the stimulus comes in and we have patterns built into our muscles and our minds and our passions and it all so easily can revert back to the old way of life. Paul uses, by the way, in Romans chapter 6, this word doulos a number of times. He speaks there about being a slave to sin. He speaks there about the state of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is enslaved to sin, Paul says. The person without Jesus Christ, the unconverted man, the man without the life of God dwelling within them, is a man who is enslaved to his sinful passions. He is driven by them. He is dominated by them. Just as surely as if they were shackles of iron bound around his ankles, he drags them around like a ball and chain. Even his very best deeds are stained with self-love, a desire for self-exaltation. Thus the Scripture judges them to be the immoral equivalent of menstrual rags. Isaiah 64, 6. The very best that this enslaved man can achieve is that 
which is a filthy rag. Our common experience demonstrates the depth and the expanse of our former enslavement. Even now, like Jacob Marley, we drag along a chain of sinful passions. Holdovers from our unconverted days. And all too frequently, most of us, if we're willing to admit it, that these remnants of sinful passions continue to have a hold on our soul. They continue to enslave us to one degree or another. Passions like anger. Beloved, we are fighters by nature. Fighters by nature. All that needs to be done is just cross us, right? Just get in my way the right time and place and you'll find out what a fighter I am. We are insatiably acquisitive. How much is enough? Rockefeller said just a little bit more, right? We are insatiably acquisitive. We are addicted to pleasure. Why else would a man destroy his life, ruin his family, plunge himself in eternal misery for an unsustainable sexual passion that lasts but a few moments? The Bible likens it to scooping up coals of fire and holding them to your breast. Addicted to pleasure. Frantic in our avoidance of pain. I don't know through the years how many couples have sat in my office whose marital relationship is in trouble. Yet they will not repent and begin anew. It's too painful a prospect for them. Instead, they would rather die on the installment plan. A little pain today, a little more tomorrow. A lifetime of it rather than face reality today. Frantic in our avoidance of pain. Possessed of great physical appetites. Gluttony, the sin that is so seldom spoken of and so often practiced among us. Slothfulness, the biblical term for laziness. Driven out of our great physical appetites. We possess a driving need to be well thought of. Self-glorification, right? We want to be noticed. We want to be thought well of. Our reputation is everything. Again, this past week, Dr. Hannah said, you don't have to walk long with Christ before you figure out that all you've got to do is avoid the big sins and lie about the little ones, and then you will be thought holy. Such a world in which we live. We are saturated in the ever-present pride that pollutes our thoughts, our words, our deeds. We seek to dominate others, push them down that we might push ourselves up over their broken bodies. These are the remnants that hang on. These are the passions that enslave our soul. We're not all possessed of all of these. We're not all possessed of them in equal amounts. 
But to one degree or another, beloved, you and I are enslaved to such things. Whether the chain that binds you is long or short, it is a chain nonetheless. We are like Eustace, willing to sell out his brother and sister for a few pieces of Turkish delight. We know Christ. We love Christ, yet we find ourselves doing and saying and thinking things that are as equally sinful and foolish as selling out your family for a few pieces of Turkish delight. We need a Savior. We need a great Savior. We need a Savior every moment of every day to deliver us from our sin. To the extent we lose our vision of the beauty of Christ, we will be dominated by these residual sinful passions that are still very much a part of both us and the world in which we live. But through the transforming work of Jesus Christ, all is not lost. All is not lost. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed, he said. Paul is a man who has been transformed. He's a man whose passions have been transformed. He's a man whose heart is now set upon Jesus Christ, not perfectly, but surely. He, like us, was formerly enslaved to sin. Now his passions are lovingly turned to Christ. The one whom he had once tried to destroy was the one he now loves and has bound himself to as a doulos of Christ Jesus. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior today by faith, then you too have been rearranged at the core of your being. At the very center of who you are, there is a love for the Savior Jesus Christ. Not a perfect love. A faltering love. But a love that is sure nonetheless. You are no longer a slave to sin, the Bible says, you are a slave to Jesus Christ, but those sinful passions continue to swirl around you. You continue to drag them along in your chain. Even though the picture of Christ in your heart may be blurry, it is nonetheless real. The greatest love of your life is no longer your wife. It is not your children. It is not your status. It is not your health. It is not your wealth. It is your Savior, Jesus Christ. You do not love Him perfectly, but you love Him assuredly. How do we rekindle our passions for Christ? How do we help fan the flame? How do we cause from the depth of our being our heart, our soul, our mind, well up to God in Christ. I have some suggestions for you. They are simple, but they are not easy. It begins with getting to know your God. Invest yourself in the Scriptures. Invest yourself in the Word of God. Read it regularly and thoroughly. We are at the beginning of a new year. 
We have challenged you again. Join us, please, in the reading of the Word of God together. Let it transform us. Let it fill us with a passion for Christ. Get to know Him, and you will know Him nowhere but here. Read the Scriptures regularly and thoroughly. Get a hymn book. Get a hymn book and sing to yourself. Get that book in which there are recorded some great statements of theology. Set to tunes which you can sing. Get a razor blade first and cut out about 80% of it and throw it away, but that's another sermon. So find the good ones, but sing them. Sing them to yourself. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says, right? Filled with the Spirit, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, right? Sing to yourself. Remind yourself of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Listen to good music. In the car. At home. At work if it's permissible. Let your heart and mind be renewed with sweet music for the people of God. Of late, I have the privilege of coming across some CDs published by a group called Sovereign Grace. It's some of the finest contemporary Christian music that I have ever heard. It is so rich and deep in the truths of the faith. It has been a bomb to my soul in these last months. I commend it to you. If you're looking for something a little more contemporary, it's admittedly a little more upbeat, although there are contemplative parts as well, but it expresses the rich theology and depth of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Pray for God's glory rather than your personal needs. How many times when we come to God in prayer do we present Him with our wish list? God bless me with this and this and this and this. And on we go. It's like Santa Claus. We rush in to sit on His knee and give Him the list of that which we want. Take time. Pray for His glory. That His glory might be extended and displayed throughout His creation. This will kindle the passion of your heart for Jesus Christ. This will cause to well up within you the fires of worship. Rebuke sinful thoughts immediately. Rebuke sinful thoughts thoughts immediately. Luther said you cannot stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Now, I don't know why Luther said that. He was bald as a billiard ball, but anyway. There's wisdom in that. They come. They come from places and at times we don't expect. And even in the midst of spiritual ministry, the thoughts flicker through our minds. 
We must rebuke them immediately. We must not dwell upon them. We must not take them out and examine them. Amuse ourselves with them. We must rebuke them for what they are. The remnant of that which is alien and hostile to God. And we must put it away and turn our thoughts to that which is glorious. That which is Christ. Again, I refer you to singing. It is a way to capture your mind for Christ. Rebuke sinful thoughts immediately. Share your faith regularly. If you want to inflame your passion for Christ, then begin to speak of His glory regularly. Tell Him what He's done. Tell your family what He's done. Tell your neighbors what He's done, your workmates. Speak of the glories of Christ. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't have to have it all down. Tell what He's done for you. Share your faith regularly. It will inflame your heart for Christ. Finally, serve Him when it's inconvenient. Serve Him when it's inconvenient. Look for the inconvenient moments and then serve Him. We serve Him out of our convenience and we are serving Him for our own selfish motives. It is to serve Him in the moment of inconvenience that then our hearts are lifted passion for Him. Do you remember what David said? When he had numbered the people, the great plague came upon Israel. Remember that? Near the end of his reign. The death angel was proceeding for three days and the people were falling like flies, 70,000. And finally the Lord said, enough! And the death angel's hand was stayed there on Mount Moriah. And David there is going to build his temple. And the landowner offers him the land free. He says, take it. David says, I will not offer to my Lord that which has cost me nothing. I will not give my God that which has cost me nothing. Serve others when it's inconvenient. When it hurts. When there's a price to be paid. It will inflame your passion for Jesus Christ. Beloved, I can't wait to unpack this epistle together. I have such high hopes for me as I go through this that I will get to know my God. And I have high hopes for you too that as we feast here that we will begin to put on spiritual muscle. We will get to know our God. Maybe you don't know Him today. Maybe you are here amongst us first time, or perhaps you've been coming for some period of time. But there is not a certainty in your heart. When I speak of a passion for Jesus Christ that inflames your soul, you don't know what I'm talking about. 
Oh, you like the people here. They're friendly enough. The goods and services are pretty good. You get a certain sense of religious feeling as you sit and sing. But the depth of your being, you know, there's no passion for Christ. He's not the love of your heart. He's not the center of your affections. He's not that for whom you are driving. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. You need to know that you are in fact separated from your Creator. That your holy Creator who has established this universe and brought you into being, that you have offended Him. That your lack of love for Him is a fundamental offense against Him. For He is worthy to be loved above all. You shall love your Lord, your God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you fail to do so, you are in what the Bible calls sin. As Paul will say later in this book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Those who do not love God in Christ Jesus, there is a place for them. A place where they will receive the just reward. A place called hell. And we all deserve it. Left to ourselves, that is where we all belong. The sinful passions that continue to hound us are but evidences of the reality that you and I, every one of us, are suited for hell. But God in His great mercy has intervened on our behalf. While we still hated Him, He sent forth His Son that He might act as a substitute for you. That upon that cross, where all of the wrath of God Almighty was poured out upon Him, that if by faith you will embrace that sacrifice, if you will believe that it would belong to you, but it went to Him, and you will commit yourself to follow Him now by faith. The Bible says you shall be saved. It happens in a moment, beloved. In the twinkling of an eye. It is unexplainable. It cannot be observed. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, it is like the blowing of the wind. We know not where it comes from. We know not where it goes. We see its effect. That is how redemption is. You will not change on the outside. You'll look just like you do now. But there will be such a wondrous transformation of your soul when the object of your heart now becomes Christ. I plead with you. Embrace Christ now. In a few minutes, we will be closing this time of public worship. I'm going to sing here momentarily. But there will be some folks standing over here by this lighted cross. They are here to talk to you about the state of your soul. Do you have questions, concerns, anything? Perhaps you have been coming for a while and you would like to join with us more formally in terms of membership. 
You may come and speak with them. They will talk you through that process. Maybe you have had a growing and dawning realization that you have yet to take that first step of discipleship in believer's baptism. Come. Speak with them. Let them open the Word of God with you and show you how you should do this. You should make public your testimony, your faith in Christ, the waters of baptism. Whatever your concern, whatever your need, you come. Let us minister to you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are not what we would like to be. We are not who we someday will be. But our Father God, by Your grace, we are not who we were. Our hearts are inflamed for Christ. And it is because You have put that flame there. We ask that You would fan it to a raging bonfire where it flickers and falters, that You would add fuel, that You would enable us to fulfill the purpose for which we have been created, to proclaim Your glory. Our Father, work in our hearts in these coming months as we begin our trek through the glorious Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon our soul. Reach out today. Condescend. Touch that heart among us who is yet to know You by faith. Peel the scales from their eyes as You did from the Apostle Paul's. Let them see You in all Your glory, Your beauty. Enable them to embrace You by faith. We pray in the name of that Galilean carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah of God. Amen.